Uh, in your worship folder, we're going to be looking at Psalm 20 uh, this morning, which on its surface is just an audaciously optimistic psalm, as you will see. Uh, but it is one, after sitting with it this week, has become really rich and rewarding, and I hope it is uh, that way for you as well. So uh, let me read it for you, and then I will pray, and we will dig in. Uh, this is God's Word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all of your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Dear Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts uh, be pleasing in your sight, and may we see the full height and width and depth of your kingship this morning. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Psalm 20 is a royal psalm. Um, That is a psalm that is, um, it heavily features uh, the royal king of Israel, and it is a companion to Psalm 20. Twenty-one. I flipped the page, almost expecting it to be there, but that's not the case in your worship in your worship folder. Uh, but they are actually companions for each other, and that this one is in context. It is most likely a psalm that would have been read before a military conquest of some kind, and that's when it's talking about the day of trouble. That this is a a an occasion uh, for when a particular kind of trouble has come down from enemies attacking and that sort of thing. And then next week, Psalm 21, then we'll get to read the companion to that, which is a psalm of celebration um, after um, God um, saves and delivers his people. Um, So uh, these two will be very much uh, connected and tied together. Um, But if there's one thing in here, it is a royal psalm and it is talking about the king. um, And what it is wanting us to grasp above all else is that we can grasp um, by faith and not by sight um, the true kingship of God over all creation and over his people, um, um, what they do, how they conduct themselves, uh, what they hope in and trust, and that kind of thing. And it made me wonder, like, the, what is, why do we need this kind of psalm? Why do we need this uh, reminder um, that God is the true king and what his kingship is actually like? Um, I think the more I, I thought about it, I think it is because the true king, the true king who is a rival to God's kingship is not really any other person or is not really any other thing, that often, uh, I think trouble itself actually functions as um, the rival ruler to God. And that when we really dig down and think about it, it is this idea of the day of trouble, um, that there is a day of trouble that can come when all things that are, are right or seemingly right can become unsettled. Uh, things cannot go well. Uh, there can be loss. There can be sadness, brokenness, and those kinds of things. And it is amazing when we really dig in and think about our own lives, how much just the prospect of trouble coming down the pipeline uh, impacts 
how we live on a day-to-day basis. Um, Some of that is wise. Um, Of course, we conduct ourselves in wisdom, knowing that trouble can come. But in a lot of ways, it can very quickly turn into a way where where a compromise happens, uh, where the threat of trouble actually takes over in our minds and in our hearts, and alleviating that discomfort becomes more important um, than uh, what God has commanded of his people. And I'll give you, this happens in just, I'll give you a silly illustration of just how this happens. Um, so one of, one of the troubles that I avidly avoid is being stuck in traffic. I absolutely hate being stuck, stuck in traffic. It is the most powerless feeling to be in a locked grid and not being able to go anywhere, no matter what my needs are or anything else. I would like, will scour Google Earth to find every possible back way to get somewhere. And it doesn't even matter if it takes longer to get there. Like, as long as it's just not uh, the situation where I'm stuck in traffic, that, um, um, that you know, that's the thing that matters the most. And that came from, I don't know when that started, but I vividly remember being stuck on 59 North when I was in college and having to play cards on the interstate because everyone was stuck still for two hours. Um, and like that feeling of just helplessness, uh, it runs real deep. Um, and now that the World Games are here, um, it's been, t- I live in Crestwood, so it's been tough to go through Avondale past the park. And you have to, you might know this, there's a light where fourth veers into third, and it, it lasts like five seconds when it's green. And when all of the traffic is rooted around that way, um, it got way backed up the last couple of weeks, and I'm stuck there. You know, with dozens of cars, and the lights just like green, burp, and you get two cars out and stuck waiting. And I'm looking at the shoulder, and I'm like, it would be so easy to just, you know, there's a don't turn on red sign to the side, and maybe if I don't make eye contact with anybody, you know, I'm really in a hurry, and um, that would be okay, right? And just as I'm, I didn't end up doing it, mostly because as I'm thinking about this, then several people behind me actually did that and like pulled out and, and then they blocked up both ways. Um, it's not that far of a reach to know how our, uh, the trouble that we just so much dislike, um, that we will go to great lengths to avoid being in a situation of trouble. And you know, traffic patterns are important because they're how we keep each other safe, but that's a small example. Um, it can be very easy to justify um, our, our work life, um, even at others' expenses, um, uh, exploiting each other in various ways, um, of having an experience of not having a voice you know, from some time in the past to now having to be right to avoid um, those feet causing a lot of harm um, to those around us. Uh, we, we literally will do anything to stay out of trouble. But what God is calling us to do here is this is a trouble where you can just picture yourselves being in this situation, that you're in God's land, you've been given God's promises, and yet there are threats. There are threats coming from the outside, and you can't just go about your day farming and doing what you want to do, but you've got to turn and respond to this trouble. And you know that as soon as um, coming down the pipeline and whatever. So what God is doing, why we have this psalm is this psalm is, and you'll notice, you might notice how we read this. There's so many voices going on here. We have the congregation speaking to the king. We see us in nine. We see probably the king speaking, you know, on his own. Um, there's all this interaction going back and forth. This psalm is, 
um, to recognize and receive the kingship of God, not only to conduct itself, even when the threat of trouble is really severe. And so how, like, there's three ways in here that just jump out um, that God actually wants us. And they really just break down to faith, hope, and love. Uh, I'm going to start with hope first. So I think what we're going to see is that God is wanting us in the face of the day of trouble to receive his kingship in hope. And then we'll buy faith second. And then through love will be the third point. Uh, when we look at by faith, um, we're just starting here in, in verse 1 where it says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble and may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And we might want to ask that why does it say the name of the God and why Jacob in particular, um, you know, why are these words used? And what it is doing, and this is, it is, it is engaging us in this exercise of what I'm calling redemptive remembering. And that in the very first place um, is that it is reminding the people of God of things that have happened in the past, of where God has delivered his people. And this line actually looks back um, to Exodus 15, uh, when God gave the divine name to Moses. And it says, and God said to Moses, I am who I am, Israel, I am sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It's a kind of a, a redemptive remembering where is alluding back to a time when God's people were in trouble, in a big day of trouble, and that God um, intervened for them. And if we read on of these allusions to chariots, um, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, um, is another reminder of that same event. I mean, that Pharaoh, who was, had more chariots and horses than anybody else, was in pursuit of God's people who had been redeemed from Egypt. And it didn't matter that, that Pharaoh had the biggest army, is that they were all wiped out um, on God, and, um, at the hand of God. That God's hand was stronger. He was the true king. He was the true power. And he exercised that kingship on behalf of his people while they were lost and while they were suffering to redeem them out of slavery. And so in a sense in here is that this is looking back, that there's this exercise of redemptive remembering, of looking back to actually remember how God has behaved in the past. But it's not just that. I mean, you'll see all of these, these mays. May the Lord do this. May the Lord do this. May the Lord do this. Like this is, this is not even, a, it's not a prayer, actually. This is not just an, uh, would you do this? Would you do this? Would you do this? That these are declarations of very confident hope. That based on what God has done in the past, then this is what he is going to be like in the future. And it doesn't mean that the people actually know specifically what is going to happen in the future. Of how God is going to take care of his people um, in particular ways. But it does highlight this characteristic of who God is. That God is the redeemer God. Who time and time and time again has freed his people from their bondage. And that this is what he is like. That will never change. So in all of these future days of trouble, no matter what they are and what they come down the line, that God is still that God. He is still the Redeemer God. And and because of that, then there is a kind of hopeful expectation that the people of God can engage in no matter what it is they face. Uh, This hope is the baseline for... um, 
for what will follow in a lot of ways and that God is the one who takes the first action and he proves himself uh, for what he is like and he reveals um, that character to his people. And there are all kinds of ways that we, we can apply this here. Um, and that, and again, this is, this is uh, exercised quite corporately, as we'll notice. And that these words of hope are spoken in a liturgical sense. Again and again and again. This, is, this was a hymn that was meant to be sung by the people of God together. In which the people of God can engage in these, in these exercises of remembering what is true. Is we have all kinds of memories. I mean, like the traffic example. That like I can point to tangible memories uh, where things didn't go well at certain times. And it is very easy to weave a narrative uh, based around those things. And the, the reverse is true also, is that one thing we'll find is that suffering in the present can also, in a way, rewrite um, the past for us um, in a way as well. That what we are experiencing currently, it feels like this is all that there is and this is all there ever has been. Um, it, things always go bad for me uh, because they are going bad now. And this is not encouraging God's people to neglect the hardships that they have faced. But what it is, is it is putting it into a much bigger context of a much bigger story. That those things are held up before the God who is faithful, the Redeemer God, who acts decisively on behalf of his people. And so God wants the people of God to gather together, to tell the stories, um, to remind each other, um, almost in a, in a habitual basis of the good things um, that he has also done, how he has intervened on behalf of his people. But that's, that's one aspect we see here. We see that, this, that God's kingship is received by hope, um, and both in this remembering the past, uh, which creates a hope, hopeful expectation of the future. Uh, but if, this is not a, a hope that is purely um, kind of a sentimental or an emotional thing. I think if we look on further, there's this, this other aspect of it, which is um, the second point that I'm going to title that God wants us to receive his kingship by faith. And faith, um, if we look into this, I mean this in a very particular way. Um, and that is, it is, again, it is not just an emotional sense, but it is a faith that is enacted in action. As that it is, it is an actually acting out based on the promises in life. Um, in obedience and actions of confidence. And uh, we see this here. Look at verses 4 through 6. Um, May he grant you your heart's desires and fulfill all your plans. Uh, this word for plans is almost always used in a military context, which means um, of strategizing um, uh, for going into war. Um, that things have to be done. This is not a call to just passivity, that because we remember and then we expect that we do nothing. But there's actually hints in here that um, what is required of God's people is that they actually act um, in real life. Um, and we see these in other ways. Um, there's a little bit of an irony, I think, when it says some trust in chariots and some in horses, uh, but we trust in the name of our Lord God because they're most likely moving into battle at this time and are actually using these things. Um, that it is not the absence of engaging in these activities um, but it is engaging with them in, in a kind of, in the right kind of way. I mean, again, in verse three, he says, and may we remember all of your offerings and regard with, fla- with favor your burnt sacrifices, which is another clue that there is an activity of, of even worship um, according to God's direction and according to his plan um, that God is calling for his people here.
Uh, Notice one more thing. Look at the repetition of the word save. Um, At least three times in here, verses 4, 6, and 9, it has some allusion to salvation, that this activity that he is calling for, um, it is done with the hopes that not that the people will accomplish something for themselves, but that God would come and that on his terms that he would be the Savior and he would be the one who would act. And I think the effect of all these things is just a reminder that faith is not a disembodied thing. But faith in all contexts, and we see this especially in this Old, Old Testament context, was that faith was actually demonstrated through obedience. It was a recognition that what good would come would come on God's terms, and it would not come on the people's terms. It meant that those looking to God in faith, that he would deliver, that that came with it, these covenant obligations that the people were to actually follow behind him um, in in faithful obedience to God. That faith is a very concrete and intangible thing, even in the face of threat. And the interesting thing also about this here is look at all these allusions to the king. As refer in verse six, he said, "Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed." And then in verse nine, "O Lord, save the king." There's a focus on the king, and that is just driving this point in further. Uh, Because if we look at who the king was supposed to be in Israel, um, in Deuteronomy seventeen fourteen through seventeen, first he says that the king you're allowed to have a king, but he should not um, accumulate horses to have at all times. That they are, or chariots, that they are to be gathered together for battle, but there's not to be a standing army. Um, that he should not accumulate wives or gold unless his heart turn away. And so there's a sense in which there's a, a kind of vulnerability that is required of the king. Um, there are tangible things that he is expected to obey. And why is that? If we read on in, in 17, 18 through 20, it says this. And when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so what do we see? One of the main functions of the king was to be that the king was actually the leader of the people in faithful obedience. The king was not to be somebody who exploited his people for in the name of military safety. He was not to be someone who was to use his authority to advance himself. But the king was to be the chief member who was bound by God's word. That the king was to be a model for the people of what obedience to God looked like. And that through his actions, it would become apparent that the human king was not the real king. But that God was always the king of Israel. This is a very tangible faith that is manifested, um, that is shown through obedience to his law. And just as an illustration... You, uh, I'm sure you have all seen this or even been the one to do this. Um, I see it in boys a lot. Um, you have boys together when they will, um, someone will, will dare somebody to, you know, hey, you should, uh, you should go ask that girl out or, or uh, you should uh, touch that, touch that or smell that or whatever. And 
And there's always somebody who wants to prove that they're brave enough. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I'd do that. And then everyone else is like, well, then do it. It's like, no, nah, I don't want to. I don't feel like it right now. Like, um, uh, no. Like, unless you do it, then you're scared. Like, the doing it is what proves um, that the bravery is actually there. And there's in a way that, that this psalm is reminding the people of God. It is, it is as the people speak to the king and as the king speaks to the people, it is a reminder that as they are going into the day of trouble, that this is not an occasion to compromise. That this is an occasion for faithful obedience. Even no matter what the cost of that may be. And the rest of the Bible fully uh, fleshes this out. That this is no small thing. It is to love God and to love neighbor with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strengths. It is not just the Ten Commandments. It is not just the other stipulations. But it is actually a heart that is turned towards God and turned towards people in love in the same way that God would. And that is a very high reminder. Um, and I want to say before moving on to this last point that there is a comfort in that. And that is when we don't know what to do, we do know what to do in a sense. That when we are in trouble and we don't know how to get out of it, there is a simplicity in God saying, what is, what is, what is it for us to do but to fear God and to keep his commandments, to love God and to love neighbor? There is a wonderful simplicity in that in being small. But there's also a warning in that, and that God in his wisdom, he knows the temptations of the heart, of what we do when we are confronted with trouble, the links that we will go to, um, the choices that we will make. And it is a warning that he cares about that. He cares about justice and that he will be faithful, no matter it is in Israel's people or the other people, to uh, maintain justice so that there is right, there is righteousness all the time. Now, we are led to this place almost every time um, we read God's word. Because what God requires of his people, it is so good, but it is so high, that there is not one single person in this room who has actually not broken one of these today. We are all coming before God, knowing what he requires, and yet unable to do it. And to make almost insult to injury, look at what it says in verse 4. Like he says, may God grant you your heart's desire. And that this is showing that there, it is even deeper than just the commands. That what God is after is that the heart of his people would be shaped and shifted to love in the way that God loves. And that there is not one single person who that does not look at and say, you have not done this today. And one of these things that we have to see when we are taking on texts like this is that as this, you can picture this hymn marching through the history of Israel. The people that God has set apart, set apart who had redeemed and had been given his promises. And think of all of the years and all of the kings that came after that and what happened. Not one of them fully lived up to what was said here. And in fact, if you read through the prophets, the prophets again and again and again, they keep saying to the king and to the people that you have run off. You have basically committed adultery with other gods instead of me. 
You have turned all kinds of idols to give yourselves a sense of stability that can only come with me. And so when this says, O Lord, save the king, and may he answer us when we call, there has always been throughout the history of the people of God some kind of unfulfilled expectation. Is that how is this actually going to happen, and how is this actually going to be made right? And of course, there we have that in the fullness of time, well, back even before Jesus came, then God promised even his people in the prophets, even as he was exhorting them for an inability to follow in his way, to accept him as their true king. He said, but there will come a day when I will make a new covenant with you in the house of Israel. That there will come a day when I will give you a new heart and I will cleanse your heart from all of its idols. I will sprinkle you clean And just think about the imagery of baptism that we saw before. That there were hints that God's love and commitment to his people would extend even beyond the covenant parameters that he had set up for his people. Those were not the end. That God's steadfast love, it extended beyond his people's wildest imagination. That the most wayward people that he ended up um, sending, that God ended up sending a perfect representative, a perfect one who kept the law for, for his people's sake, who kept both sides of the law, God's side and our side, so that he could continue to bestow his steadfast love on his people to fulfill the promises that he made them, even though they so, we so have such difficulty with actually receiving and accepting the kingship of God. If there is anything that will actually move our hearts towards God, that we would would love him, that we would trust in him, that there would be any kind of joy, it is because of the absolutely abundant grace of God, of how he fulfilled this deep longing in his people, sinners though they may be. And we find ourselves in this in-between part um, of life as well. We still have something looking forward to at the end where all things will be made right, where there will be no sin, there will be no days of trouble in a time that is coming. Even the threat of those will be gone. But what we have to look back on is a, in the person of Jesus, is a very tangible and concrete Expression of the steadfast love of God. And the steadfast love of God has been given a face. It was a real person that really walked around that has been given to us. And it is in grasping that, it is in grasping our great need and the over and abundant grace and steadfast love that God has given to his people that our hearts can actually be free to love. I would propose that what the Bible teaches is that we actually can't do that until we have experienced the true steadfast love of God poured on us through his grace. And so I want to end this just by asking us here, um, is that what, what, it's a good exercise for, for this week. Uh, what does trouble look like for you? Uh, what are the days that you most dread? What are the circumstances that you most dread? What are the things that take up so much room in your heart Um, that you lie awake at night uh, thinking about them? 
What is the day of trouble in your life? And what I want you to do is I want you to think about that in the context of one of my favorite verses, which is from John 16, 33. Uh, This is Jesus' word. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you uh, humbled and grateful of your steadfast love. Pray that we would never uh, run away from that, that you would continuously remind us of that, um, and that through it, that we would have great joy, and that our love for each other and your world would abound because you first loved us. In Christ's name, amen.